Okay, people. Uh, we'll read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and see what you think it says to you. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 3. My child, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and abundant welfare they will give you. Do not let loyalty and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favour and good repute in the sight of God and of people. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Be in awe of Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be a healing for your flesh and a refreshment for your body. Honour Yahweh with your substance and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My child, do not despise Yahweh's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For Yahweh reproves the one he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Any of those uh, lines come home to you? Make you think? Dying for lack of discipline. Yeah, wow. That's a pretty un-Californian thought, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Dying for lack of discipline. Again? Go on. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Ah, that's a good point, yeah, that's a good link. Yeah. Here's where Hebrews picks up that uh, discipline line. In your struggle against sin, you have not re yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Oh yeah, I think I could recognise that. In my, shed, in my struggle against sin, I have not yet resisted to the point of shedding my blood. In fact, I don't give very much attention to resisting sin at all, really, when I think about it, do I? And Hebrews goes on, goes on. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. My child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and chastises every child whom he accepts. And Hebrews comments, Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you do not have that discipline in which all children share, then you are illeg illegitimate and not his children. 
Moreover, we had human parents to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not be even more willing to be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? Because apparently in the absence of discipline you don't live. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share his holiness. Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time. No kidding! <laughs> but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping, drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. That's Hebrews 12. Mm-hmm. It's kind of puzzling in the sense that it seems there it says make your path straight so you don't get in these situations or be in a bad way with God. But here it's almost do this and God will make your path straight. There's some, is, is there kind of... Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's a bit like the thing I was saying last week that I find puzzling, that is, is wisdom God's gift, or is it our responsibility to seek it? Um, or for that matter, you know, are, are, are you somebody who believes in Christ because God opened your eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ? Or are you somebody who believes in Christ because you decide to follow Christ? And, and you can't answer any of those, you can't, those, those questions can never be either ors. There's a kind of mystical, um, did you fall in love with your wife or did your wife fall in love with you? A man chases a girl until she catches him. That's an old song um, and an old truth. Uh, but just no doubt capable of being feminized and turned the other way around. Um, there's, a, there's something... There's something mysterious about that process of a relationship coming into being, and it, those are all um, aspects of that, I suspect. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting, the idea of heart, because commonly in our culture we associate the heart with feelings. Yep, right. Yeah. But if you look at the Hebrew grammar and you look at the idea of heart, it's more like will, volition, yep. sort yep. of your inner yep. person. Yep. And a lot of times we sort of say, I feel like I feel like this, but we act in a different way. Yeah. And we and the idea of writing a command on our hearts is far more invasive. You mean it's invasive? what what right has God got to write commands on my heart? Yes, that's yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, it's whenever you come across the word heart in English translations, it's worth substituting the word mind and see if it works. Uh, Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, because in um, the, the, the thinking of the Old Testament guys and then the New Testament guys, uh, the heart stands for what we would call the mind. If they want to talk about the feelings, they're much more likely to talk about the guts. Um, than about the heart 
So, and sometimes translations get it. Sometimes you get the word, words like mind, or in Proverbs the word sense uh, quite often comes. Somebody who's got no sense is more literally somebody who's got no heart. Um, and uh, so sometimes the translations kind of do that for you, but, but more often than not they don't. So whenever you come across the word heart, try substituting the word mind or attitude or will, and sometimes things fall into place. Yeah. Um. I, I, yeah, the invasive notion. I, I, um, I, I suspect it's, it's still that relationship. When, you, when, when, when the uh, prophets talk about giving you a new heart or when um, Paul or Exodus talk about hardening the heart, um, I suspect it's kind of less invasive than it sounds in the sense that, um, that what God does is dangle in front of your mind things you might do and um, uh, attract you so God dangles in front of you the fact that Christ has died for you and almost you can't help but respond it's not that God manipulates you it's that um, God puts it there puts it out there for you to see um, not that God's afraid of being invasive in the sense that I mean you know Saul the New Testament Saul didn't have a huge lot of opportunity to say, no, I think I'll carry on uh, opposing Jesus, thank you very much. When you've had the kind of experience, when God has broken into your life the way that God did on the Damascus Road, you don't really have much alternative. God doesn't care as much about our free will as we do. Um, and uh, we might as well um, deal with that. <laughs> okay, let's sing this song, um, which relates, you'll see, in some ways to... Uh, things that we were just reading. Guide my feet, Lord, while I run this race. Guide my feet, Lord, while I run this race. Guide my feet, Lord, while I run this race. Because I don't want to run this race in vain. Hold my hand, Lord, while I run this race. Hold my hand, Lord, while I run this race. Hold my hand, Lord, while I run this race, cause I don't want to run this race in vain. Stand by me, Lord, while I run this race. Stand by me, Lord, while I run this race. Stand by me, Lord, while I run this race, cause I don't want to run this race in vain. Gracious God, we pray for the um, humility to bow down before you as the one who, in any case, may choose to exercise his sovereignty over us. Um, we want, though, to be the kind of people who want to walk your way and to have you guide our feet. And as we read the scriptures together again, we pray that you'll open our eyes some more to what is the way that you lay ahead of us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now all these things are in a different arrangement from usual, so I may not be able to lecture at all because they are going to confuse me totally. However, it will be okay because if that's the case, you, you know how you have to bribe the TA to give you a good grade? Well, it comes out differently because Mark the TA has come with this huge bag of candies for you to eat. Um, so, and there's at least about two or three each, I would think, really. 
So I uh, just pass them around and, you know, <laughs> give you something to do. Let's see if I want to snitch in. Well, what's going on there? Um, what is a Tootsie Roll, I wonder? Sugar corn syrup? No, I don't think so, really. Um, all right, a Tootsie Do I want a Tootsie Roll? I'm very ignorant. I'm sorry? They're mentioned in the Psalms, did you say? It's a song, Tootsie. It's a movie. I can see that if I bite into this, I won't say anything else in the rest of the class, so I'm going to resist the temptation to do that. <coughs> okay, enough, fr enough frivolity. Um, now there may be more frivolity that follows, I don't know, who knows what will happen. <laughs> Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 1 to 11, which I entitle, How to Stay Faithful. So I'm on page 104 uh, in the um, course notes. Proverbs 1 to 9 is the section of scripture that gives most sustained attention to sexual faithfulness. Uh, I guess that 1 Corinthians uh, is the next most significant section of scripture in this connection. The problem uh, at Corinth is less focused or it's broader than is the case in Proverbs 1 to 9. Uh, but uh, 1 Corinthians does show how there are contexts in the life of the New Testament church as well as in the life of Israel, uh, when uh, sex becomes a particular problem. Uh, the two books together may then point to various contexts where sexual unfaithfulness becomes uh, an issue, a problem. One is that Corinth was a notoriously pagan and immoral city. And obviously some contexts put more pressure on people uh, as far as sex is concerned than others do. A second uh, element in the context of Corinth is that the Corinthian church knew great spiritual renewal. And it's kind of strange fact that, that when there is great spiritual renewal, often sex becomes a problem. As far as Proverbs is concerned, uh, Proverbs 1 to 9 comes from a social context after the exile uh, when within the people of God, old certainties had gone. Uh, you can tell that from when you're reading Ecclesiastes. The kind of things, the kind of questions that nobody would ask, people now ask. Old social structures no longer obtained. At least, it looks as if there was a, a stability about the way the society worked in the pre-exilic period, uh, in the villages and so on, uh, that uh, didn't obtain in the same kind of way uh, in the Second Temple period. Old certainties had gone. People weren't... The, the Exodus was a long time ago. Um, can, you, can you be sure about the truths, the, the things you're supposed to live by? Can you ask new questions? Old social structures no longer obtained. And then in Proverbs 1-9, to number 4 on my sheet, um, these chapters suggest an audience that was involved in studying deep theological questions. So you get the um, 
kind of uh, teaching about creation that you get in Proverbs 1 to, 1 to 9 and the extraordinary way in which Proverbs 8 in particular talks about miswisdom um, as uh, a, a being, a person you could almost say, who's there alongside of God in the process of God's creating of the world. So there's reflection on the nature of the, um, the way in which the world came to be created and who God was and, and uh, uh, some talking about what's going on for God in the process of creation which you don't get elsewhere when the Old Testament talks about creation. So, number five, in Proverbs 1-9 to um, you uh, get insight embodied as a woman. Miss Wisdom. And 1 Corinthians makes similar kinds of assumptions. Wisdom talks about, uh, 1 Corinthians talks about women prophesying as well as women praying. Um, in, in Corinth, women were involved uh, in worship, in, in the leading of worship, uh, in the most powerful uh, and important ways that were possible. They could take a lead in praying and in prophesying. And the fact that they could take a lead in prophesying shows how the church was uh, open to learning from women. Uh, number six, finally. Uh, as I pointed out last time, uh, Proverbs 31 um, pairs with um, Proverbs chapters 1 to 9 in forming a, a bracket around the book as a whole um, and that um, emphasises the uh, position of a woman. And in Proverbs 31... Uh, you get a picture of a woman exercising responsibility, not simply following men. Uh, and 1 Corinthians 11, in that portrait uh, of um, the, the troubles in Corinth that have been caused uh, as um, byproducts of the freedom that women have to exercise leadership in prayer and in prophecy, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 uh, also implies women exercising freedom from old constraints. Who would have thought that women were leading, uh, taking a lead in worship? But when the Holy Spirit comes to be active, then women take a lead in worship. Now, if those are aspects of the social context um, that in which issues about sex arise, uh, a pagan and immoral city, a great spiritual renewal, uh, a social context where old certainties have gone, uh, an audience involved in deep theological questions, uh, insight embodied as a woman, uh, women exercising freedom from all constraints. It's not surprising if sex, if sex is a problem for seminaries and pastors in California in the 2000s then. Two or three falls ago at the beginning of the uh, year, uh, I had to take part in one of those introductory sessions for new students. Maybe some of you were there. Uh, and somebody asked a question about what did people need to be most kind of concerned about or guarded about with regard to their time at seminary. Uh, and I said, sex. Uh, and the guy who'd asked the question evidently assumed that I meant homosexual relationships. And I wasn't thinking about that at all. Um, I was thinking it's rela relationships between um, men and women uh, are much more of a problem in a community like ours in the 2000s than problems between um, uh, between people of the same sex. Um, I haven't got with me the splendid quote from somebody who points out that there are two verses in scripture or something like that that warn against homosexual 
relationships, but there are 246 or something like that that warn against homosexual, heterosexual relationships. It's not that God doesn't love heterosexuals, it's just that they need more help and more kind of guidance. <laughs> Proverbs 1 to 9 uh, only discusses the, the issue about sex uh, from a man's angle. Um, now, maybe that's because there were no women in theological school in those days. Um, and or, perhaps in that context, women were less inclined to unfaithfulness. Women were less liberated, maybe. My guess is that in our context, at least, uh, at every point, the sexual politics have to be seen both ways. Um, I leave the point in talking about it here in Proverbs in its gendered form, because that's the form in which Proverbs discusses it. But I guess that we need to see it both ways. Proverbs 1 to 9 then uh, sees the issue in these ways, it seems to me. First, it owns the fact, uh, it rubs your nose really in the fact that some married, ma married men who are believers do have affairs. Quite possibly there are people in this room at the moment of whom that's true. Um, and uh, over the time, the years that are going to follow, there certainly will be some of us of whom that's true. There's a thrill about falling in love. Um, particularly about falling in love with somebody when your first love has grown cold. And or there's an excitement of having an affair. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, by another woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Chapter 5, verse 20 asked, asks, there's something intoxicating about being in love. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, says the foolish woman at the end of um, chapter 9. It's exciting. Secondly, Proverbs 1 to 9 owns, some married women do have affairs. Uh, here in Proverbs, they are presented as people who are somehow outsiders. It's the other woman, the strange woman, the alien woman, the foreign woman. The, the translations vary in how they put it, how they translate it. Uh, and uh, it's not absolutely clear what's the right translation. Maybe different translations in different contexts. Maybe these uh, women that Proverbs is talking about uh, are like the uh, members of other nations who are mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah. They are actual foreigners in that sense. Maybe the, the temptation lies in the foreignness of people. But then in traditional English, in talking about affairs, um, there used to, at least, I don't know whether there is now, but there used to be the expression, the other woman. Um, the traditional idea of the, of the other woman. Similarly, similarly presents the kind of person who's willing to have an affair uh, with a man who's married as, well, th th that person makes herself into an outsider. Um, I, the, the, the word that's commonly translated prostitute uh, in the Old Testament, the word zonar, um, is, is a word actually of rather more uh, general meaning than that. The verb zana means to be involved in sexual activity that society does not approve of. And a zona is a person who is involved in sexual activity which society doesn't approve of. And being a prostitute is part of that, 
but any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage counts as zanaing. So that um, when, for instance, Hosea talks about Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh as like that of a prostitute, it doesn't mean that Israel is charging for sex. The, the money isn't the point. Uh, the, the comparison lies in the unfaithfulness and, with regard to this word, in the idea that what you're doing is something that society doesn't approve of. It's the other woman who is involved in Zanut. Proverbs' particular point, number three there um, on my list, is having an affair is really stupid! Um, now, uh, if you're reading the Pentateuch, reading the Torah, then what it says is, having an affair is wrong. It, it breaks Yahweh's commandments. Uh, very often it's the case that the kind of teaching you get on any topic uh, in Proverbs is the same as the teaching you get in the Torah. Uh, lots of par parallels in particular. It's wonderful listening to that um, bag travel around the room and knowing what delight it's bringing to you um, and, and feeling how deprived I am that I cannot put this Tootsie in my mouth because I shall never be able to say another word. I shall take it at um, 10 to 8 and chew it through the break. Where was I? Where was I? I must have been somewhere. Um, having an affair is really stupid. The, the teaching in Deuteronomy and the teaching in Proverbs particularly uh, are very similar to each other. Uh, you could put Proverbs and Deuteronomy in columns alongside each other in what they teach on various topics. Uh, but the, the basis for the teaching, the kind of logic of it in the two books varies. And Deuteronomy is saying, don't do this because God says so. Uh, Proverbs is saying, don't do it because it's really stupid. Because whether you have an affair because you've fallen in love with somebody, or just because of the thrill of it, says Proverbs, it's almost certain to end in pain and loss and quite likely to ruin your life. I uh, have a vivid memory of um, uh, walking down into the Garth one day after I'd taught uh, a class that had run from 11 to 1, I guess, and there was a guy I'd had in a class sitting in the Garth down there during the summertime, looking extremely down in the mouth and morose. Uh, and I asked him what had happened, and his phrase was, he'd made a train wreck of his life. Because um, he'd had an affair with somebody, and his wife had found out, and she'd left him with the kids. And his life, he thought, was ruined. And maybe it recovered. I mean, people, people do get their lives back together. Uh, relationships get back together. Marriages get back together. Um, but the comments that Proverbs makes about the consequences of having an affair are broadly totally realistic. Having an affair is really stupid. Whether you do it because you fall in love with somebody or because of the thrill, it's almost certain to end in pain and loss and quite likely to ruin your life. And that won't be true in quite the same sense in our culture because you can get away with things in the broad culture um, in a way that you might not have been able to do in Israel. But, but, in but the very fact that that guy reacted that way shows how in individuals' lives, in our culture too, it can seem like a train wreck. Further then, says Proverbs, having an affair can't be consistent with reverence for Yahweh or awe for Yahweh 
as I read it out, as I translated it out in uh, Proverbs 3 when we read it just now. The phrase that's traditionally translated, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh. Uh, rather, rather as each time you come across the word heart, it's a good idea in your mind to replace it by the word mind. So every time you come across the word fear um, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, then try replacing it by the word reverence or awe. Uh, because although occasionally the Bible is talking about a fear of God that does mean being afraid of God, that you've got reason to be afraid of God, uh, usually when it talks about the fear of God, it's talking about reverence for God, awe of God, submission to God. That's the sense in which uh, awe for God is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says. And having an affair can't be consistent with reverence for Yahweh, with awe for Yahweh. Now the, 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 the problem is that when anybody has an affair... And this applies to uh, believers as much as to anybody else, or more to believers than anybody else, maybe. They're very likely uh, to tell themselves that this love is a gift from God. If it's love, it can't be wrong, can it? Oh, yes, it can. Positively, Proverbs then uh, points to some guidelines for safeguarding against the problem. The first is to own it, own the reality of the problem. Uh, I, one of the things that I love about the Old Testament is that, is that it brings everything out in the open. Now in church, we don't so much really, particularly by not reading the Old Testament. We don't talk about the, real, the things that really matter. I mean really matter in the sense that things that are a genuine part of our lives. Uh, remember that, that bit of um, the Brueggemann lecture that I played you the other week where, where the woman, uh, where the people were gathering, the women were gathering for a Bible study week, it was every week and it was all a bit flaky and artificial and eventually a woman comes in and says, um, I've got to talk about this and they come on us as Brueggemann like buzzards, don't talk like that, but it's too late. Supposing, he says in that same uh, bit of tape, the people start valuing coming to church because there you can talk about the things you can't talk about anywhere else. Um, the great thing about the Old Testament is that he talks about the things that, that we need to talk about, that are realities in people's lives. Um, and, and here's Proverbs being uh, an example of that. These chapters in Proverbs in particular bring out into the open the fact that people within the people of God, within the church, have affairs. Let's face the fact. Second uh, Proverbs guideline for safeguarding against the problem uh, is, to use our, our kind of colloquialism, uh, it bids us to keep our head. It bids us to be wise. Not to be led by your emotions or by some other part of your anatomy. Third, I suggest that it says, uh, keep in daily touch with God over your life. Uh, and there's the Proverbs 3, the passage that we read at the beginning. Really, rather a strange passage to find in Proverbs. Kind of doesn't fit so well uh, with lots of the material on either side. Consequently, it's, of course, it's one of the passages that people read. Because it's kind of homey and it's okay and it's kind of spiritual, things like that. Um, 
My child, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart, your mind, your attitude, your will, keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and abundant welfare they will give you. Do not let loyalty and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them round your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. So sometimes God writes on the tablet of the heart, but we have some responsibility too for writing on the tablet of our heart or our mind or our will or attitude. Say you will find favour and good repute in the sight of God and of people. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and your mind and your attitude and your will. And don't rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Which is a kind of familiar phrase, though I'm not sure we think very often about what it means. I presume what it means is, don't think that you understand everything. There's a thing often operating in biblical study called a hermeneutic of suspicion. That means when you read the Bible, you suspect what you find there. Y'all do that, I see you do it in your postings. But an even more element, an even more important element in, the hermeneutic of, in a hermeneutic of suspicion is the hermeneutic of suspicion of myself when I'm reading. What am I open to seeing or, or not open to seeing? Where am I thinking that I understand when actually I have no clue? Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think you understand. Be in awe of Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing for your flesh and a refreshment for your body. How interesting that that passage stay, sits there in the midst of Proverbs 1-9 to uh, with its concern about sexual relationships. Uh, keep in daily touch with God over your life. That does mean not trusting in your own eyes, uh, in your own knowledge, in your own wisdom, uh, even with regard to your daily relationship with God. So you need to be talking with other people too. But, but don't let what you do with your body, with your sex life, sit over here, and what you do with your piety, your religious life, sit over here. Christians have very, very often done that, and I guess still do. Keep watch over your heart. In chapter 4 verse 23, I think Proverbs is using the word heart in a broader sense of the, the inner being, the wellsprings of who you are. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Look at what's going on inside you. Um, now people are sometimes inclined to say, what, Jesus isn't so interested in what we do. Jesus is interested in our hearts. It's one of those dangerous pieces of crap. Um, what Jesus, Jesus is interested in what you bloody well do. Um, and if your heart to be lovely, but your life to be rotten, your behaviour to be rotten, does not mean Jesus says, oh, it's okay, his heart's in the right place. But having said that, um, it is really important what's going, going on inside you. There are quite a lot of um, rules in the Torah, to go back to the Torah, quite a lot of rules um, that declare curses on things and you wonder, 
why is there this long list of curses on these things? And then you realise that the kind of thing it's talking about are the kind of things that nobody can see. Um, you can have rules, you can have um, sanctions, you can have laws. You can put people into prison. You can execute people for things that they do. You can't do that for what's going on inside them. Hence the stress indeed that Jesus places um, on uh, not, not just whether you actually have sex with somebody else, but what's, what you're thinking about, about that. Because what you're thinking about expresses itself in what you do. So watch the wellsprings of your life, says Proverbs. Keep watch over your heart. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And then develop your enthusiasm for your wife. <laughs> oh, husband. No, I meant for that one, okay. <clears throat> for the most part, Proverbs 1 to 9 um, majors on the, the danger, the negative side to sex, and that's uh, why it's important that Proverbs is complemented by the Song of Songs that we'll be looking at um, in the second half this evening. Um, but Proverbs includes this one paragraph in chapter 5 that puts the... Uh, the positive side, if you like, though it's still putting the positive side out of its concern for safeguarding your faithfulness. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for sharing with strangers. Nobody's quite sure about precisely what's the implication of this metaphor, but it's pretty clear in general terms what's the implication of the metaphor. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. May her breasts satisfy you at all times. May you be intoxicated always by her love. And that then is the lead-in to the warning, why should you be intoxicated, my son, by another woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? There's nothing wrong with being drunk on sex as long as it's your wife or your husband that you're drunk on, says Proverbs. Develop your enthusiasm uh, for your wife, um, an enthusiasm whose um, nature is then expounded at much greater length in the Song of Songs, as I say, that we'll look at later on. Okay, talk to the person next year for a minute or two about that, if you dare. <laughs> or if not, talk about the um, football results. <laughs> no, talk about that.
Was it you asked me about the yes. Hispanic Proverbs? You want to borrow that? Have a look at it. Let me have it back because it's the only copy I've got. Verse 17 of which chapter? Proverbs 5. Oh, yeah. I'm just wondering about polygamy. So how do you reconcile that with polygamy saying, do not share your wife? Oh. Okay. And yeah. having multiple. Okay, yeah, right, yeah. Okay, people. Somebody was just asking me uh, how you reconcile that idea of um, not sharing your, um, not, not letting, you, letting your springs be scattered abroad and being for yourself or own, not sharing with strangers. How, that, how to reconcile that with, with the acceptance of polygamy? Um, and the, the answer to that is that uh, if, if you've got two people, say you've got um, like Elkanah, who's married both to Hanar and Peninnah, then um, both Hanar and Peninnah are legitimate wives of Elkanah. So if Elkanah, Elkanah is not spreading his seed out in the streets uh, by having relationships both with Hanar and Peninnah, if he is having it off with some other woman out there, then that then counts as adultery. Uh, but within the terms of, a, of the relationship that is a, a proper legal kind of recognized relationship between a man and two women, um, then the, uh, there's no contravention of what's being said here. And that assumption, uh, it's, it's, it's quite important for us, because polygamy seems weird to us, whereas loads of other sexual relationships that people in the Bible would think were weird don't seem weird to us, uh, because polygamy seems weird to us, it's important that we see that polygamous relationships are not adulterous relationships. They are proper, marital, uh, recognised by society relationships. Um, and, and so the, the faithfulness of the bond it's difficult for us to see, but that's how it is. The faithfulness of, a bond, of the bond between a man and both his wives um, is, uh, is something that they can kind of handle, and that's different from somebody have a, having a relationship with somebody outside of that um, relationship. Uh, anybody want to say anything else about what we've done so far? Mm-hmm.
in the spirit of feminist theology, if we could ever ask God if women could have more than one husband? Uh, yeah, I don't see. I don't see that uh, a woman, a woman having more than one husband, uh, is then is theologically, ethically, any different um, from a man having more than one wife. No, the theologically, ethically, they'd be the same status. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know of any examples. No, but I think, um, and but that's because in the context of patriarchy. Yeah. Um, to have more than one wife, it's easy for us to think that polygamy is something to do with sex. It isn't anything to do with sex, it's to do with things like status. Yeah. So somebody like Solomon has loads of wives. David and Solomon have loads of wives because they're important guys. If you're an important guy, you've got to have loads of houses and you've got to have loads of wives. Sorry, that's just how the society works. Um, now once you've turned all that on its head, so, so the question of polyandry, um, uh, that is, uh, that's the right term, isn't it, for a woman having more than one husband doesn't arise because of the nature of the patriarchal society. But when you're asking the theological and ethical question of whether polygamy is okay, I mean, I take it that, it, that the Old Testament makes clear in various ways that polygamy wasn't what God intended. God's intention is one man, one woman uh, for life. Um, but, uh, but, but once that has um, broken down in the society, then the, there wouldn't be any difference in the theological status of a woman having more than one husband over against a husband having more than one wife. Okay, Proverbs and Corporal Punishment. Because I had a, um, a, a note from a student um, in a previous time I taught the course, uh, which asked this that I put on the, um, uh, on the board there, on, or on, the, on page 105. One of the current Christian parenting trends has been to use the Proverbs as a how-to instructional manual for parents. Here's an excerpt from the book Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. God has commanded the use of the rod in discipline and correction of children. It is not the only thing you do, but it must be used. He has told you that there are needs within your children that require the use of the rod. If you're going to rescue your children from death, if you're going to root out the folly that's bound up in their hearts, if you're going to impart wisdom, you must use the rod. The next paragraph defines the rod. The rod is a parent in faith toward God and faithfulness towards his or her children undertaking the responsibility of careful, timely, measured and controlled use of physical punishment to underscore the importance of obeying God, thus rescuing the child from continuing in his foolishness until death. <coughs> Using these same arguments, I've been told by well-meaning Christian parenting experts that if I didn't spank my children, some say only until they become verbal, others at any sign of willful rebellion, regardless of age, that I was disobeying God's command. These comments are usually fleshed out with tales of woe about parents who have ignored God's command and the unfortunate results. Also in the conversation, the other famous parenting proverb, chain up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it, is evoked as a form of guarantee. In other words, if you parent this way, your child will turn out great. If not, you're in for a load of trouble. Is this the legitimate use of the proverbs? If not, how are the proverbs to be used? Do you think I would have a less rebellious spirit if I'd been spanked as a child? Does the New Testament talk about disciplining children in this way? Uh, another student, who was my TA, uh, provided the an this answer about the problem with taking Proverbs as commandments. One of the problems with this viewpoint is that the verses cited as mandates or commandments are Proverbs. Do not withhold discipline from your children. If you beat them with a rod, they will not die. If you beat them with a rod, you will save their lives from Sheol. My question is, what would happen if we regarded the entire book of Proverbs as commandments meant to be fulfilled literally by God's people today? Here are a few examples of the sort of things we'd be required to do by a biblical mandate. 
We must beat stupid people, as well as our children. Uh, so you can all queue up afterwards. We must beat scoffers and those who need inward purification. We must cut off the tongues of perverts. We must subject lazy people to forced labour. We must own many oxen if we want to have food to eat. We must cast lots in order to, re to resolve disputes. We must commit suicide by slicing our throats if our appetites are too large. So she's illustrating there the problem about taking Proverbs in that literal kind of way. Uh, and I add uh, that one of the things that scandalises Proverbs quite often is that obviously many of them, as it were, aren't true if you think they're telling you what always works 100% of the time. Um, but the fact that, as you've seen in some of the um, Proverbs that you've read for today, that you, you can sometimes get one proverb that will contrast with another, shows that there is a recognition in the book of Proverbs as a whole that life is much more complicated than it can look if you just take one proverb as the uh, ultimate truth. Uh, some comments of mine to add to those comments from that um, TA. Uh, first, as, as we've already seen as it happens, um, in the New Testament, Hebrews 12 illustrates for you the application of that talk about discipline from Proverbs. Uh, so you can't get out of Proverbs by saying, oh, it's only the Old Testament. Jesus has taught us something kind of fuller, which is usually what people say, but believe, trust me, it never works. Second, note that the child who is disciplined in Proverbs is a na'ar, which means something like a youth. I was once called a na'ar in Israel, and I was 30 at the time. So what that suggests is that this is not talking about children, certainly not talking about people who are pre-verbal. It's talking about the um, responsibility that, uh, not least, for instance, that, um, that adults, uh, that middle-aged adults, the heads of families, have got for their teenage and their young adult um, offspring. They are the na'ar. Such a person is at least as much the na'ar. And that explains why you get references in Proverbs to people who drink too much. You think, who are these children who are drinking too much? They're not children. They're teenagers. They're adults. Um, and this is the really bad news. You know, when you're 40 or 50, you've got some responsibility in the way that um, the Old Testament thinks for your family, which doesn't mean just your little children family. It means your grown-up family. And they are the people whom you're going to be, going to be uh, expected to discipline. So good luck disciplining your six foot six, you know, teenager. That's, that's the real problem that Proverbs raises. How are you going to do that? And of course, it's much, uh, it was much easier, no doubt, in the kind of social context to which Proverbs belongs, uh, where it was much easier for um, parents to exercise authority uh, in relation to families, not least because they, they exercised loads of control about like, what you eat, um, what, how the farm works, whether you get thrown out. So the, um, the whole social structure is different um, from, from the one that, uh, that would obtain now. Uh, then thirdly, note that the word for discipline or for correction is the word that also means instruction. Uh, and so don't assume that every time you come across that word for discipline, it's got to imply physical punishment uh, if the context doesn't imply that. That then about Proverbs and Corporal Punishment. That last um, little uh, note there takes me um, to back into the beginning of Proverbs, which um, I think is a very uh, interesting, suggestive introduction to the nature of Proverbs as a whole. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. 
for learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice and equity, to teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young. Let the wise also hear and gain in learning, and in the discerning acquire skill, to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Awe for Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Note the words that come here. The, these proverbs are for learning about wisdom, which is a practical enterprise. It involves understanding, but it also involves practice. Um, it's about instruction, which is that word that often is translated discipline. And the use of that word implies that learning is not easy. You know that, for goodness sake, it's week seven or whatever it is, isn't it? <laughs> learning is costly. Learning involves hard work. Learning is not easy. Uh, it, uh, it brings you insight. The capacity to see between things. Discernment. To see through things. It makes it possible for you to gain instruction in wise dealing um, uh, and in shrewdness, in verse 4. The word that's used to describe the serpent back in Genesis 3. Shrewdness is the capacity to get people to, to, to do the things that you want them to do. Um, which could be bad things, as in Genesis 3. Um, but as every parent knows, can be good things. To teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young. Um, but again, whenever you come across the word knowledge uh, in the Old Testament, it's worth looking to see, it's worth trying replacing it by the word acknowledgement. Because uh, knowledge um, is, is often in the Old Testament an expression of commitment and of practice. Not merely an ex it's not merely something that goes on in your head. And sometimes the translations do translate the ordinary verb for to know uh, by acknowledge, though they don't always do that. I think, I'm just checking Proverbs 3, where the word acknowledge came in the English translation to see whether it's that word. Yes! In all your ways acknowledge him. Um, it said in Proverbs 3 verse 6 in the NRSV that I read out. But it's the ordinary verb that's, that's very often translated know. In all your ways, know him. Now when we talk about knowing God, we tend to think about individual spiritual experience. When the Bible talks about knowing God, it's talking about acknowledging God, uh, owning, acknowledging that God is God, and obeying God. So that uh, acknowledging and obeying are very closely related to, to each other, um, as indeed are that fear or reverence um, idea, uh, that's closely associated with submission and thus with obedience. Being in awe of God and acknowledging God, knowing God, are both issue in obedience, both are expressed in obedience. So when Proverbs chapter 1 talks about knowledge, um, then it's talking at least as much about acknowledgement. And I like to tell the story about more than once I have to confess in my life when I've been stopped for speeding and the policeman said, Sir, do you know what the speed limit was on that road? And I say, yeah, because I knew it was 65 and I knew I was doing 80. 
but, but if I'd been speaking, if this had happened in Israel and the policeman had asked me that question, I wouldn't have been sure what the right answer was. Because I knew what the speed limit was, but I wasn't acknowledging the speed limit. Um, to acknowledge, to recognise, is not merely to have something up in your head, but to have something by your right foot, in the case of this particular uh, piece of activity. <laughs> Knowledge and prudence to the young. Um, prudence related to shrewdness, what's, sen what's sensible? Uh, not being led by the wrong part of your anatomy. Uh, let the wise also hear and gain in learning, and the discerning acquire skill. Um, the word for learning is the word for taking, getting. Again, it's something you have to grasp it. And the word for skill is the word for, for the, um, the ropes with which you steer a boat. This is skill in steering your way through life um, that Proverbs is seeking to offer people. In lots of ways, then, the words that are used to describe wisdom show the link between thinking and action. But, but that's not by means, not, the, not, not, by only, no, not by any means the only significant, maybe surprising collocation of ideas that you get in this opening chapter, this opening uh, paragraph of Proverbs. Because, strangely, in verse 3b, suddenly, alongside those words for things like shrewdness and knowledge, you get thrown in righteousness, justice, and equity. So it turns out that wisdom keeps company uh, with justice and with fairness, with doing the right thing, with faithfulness. Uh, and then at the end of the paragraph, in verse 7, is that declaration that awe for Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So that wisdom also keeps company with relationship with Yahweh, uh, as well as with questions about ethics and morals. Um, and a neat thing about Proverbs is the way in which those are interwoven all the way through. Uh, and Proverbs is totally um, unfazed in the way it'll jump uh, from references to, to how the descriptions of how things work out in life, just as descriptions, just as bits of analysis of how life is, into comments about Yahweh's involvement and what obedience means and so on. Note in that opening paragraph, but also later on in chapter 1, um, who are the people at whom... Proverbs is aiming. Um, it's got four audiences in mind. It refers to the simple. The object of Proverbs is to teach shrewdness to the simple. The young, the naive, the people who are unformed, the people who don't know yet. Uh, and Proverbs sees them as in quite a dangerous position because they can be so easily led astray. And they thus contrast with the wise or the discerning that Proverbs talks about. And an interesting aspect of that introduction in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, is this assumption that the teaching it's given is not, just, is not simply basic treat, uh, teaching for young, naive people. Let the wise also hear and gain in learning, 
it says in verse 5. You never stop learning and all the way through in life you, you don't very often need some new truths. What you actually need is to be grasped by the old truths. Uh, then there is the fool, the stupid person, who of course isn't the person who has um, a, a poor IQ, but a person who won't take any notice of what is sensible. Um, and the extreme version of that is the scoffer, the mocker, who doesn't come in those opening verses, but does come in verse 22. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? The scoffer, the mocker, is the person who thinks that they know and therefore uh, they can spend all their time with their mouths open. They don't need to have their ears open. Um, and uh, Proverbs can get quite um, worked up about those people. Two other comments about, um, uh, about Proverbs that I've um, put there uh, on the sheet. I've referred to the passage in chapter 8 where it talks about Proverbs' involvement with God in creation. Uh, Yahweh created me at the beginning of his work, says the NRSV, the first of his acts of long ago. Long ago I was set up, says Ms. Wisdom, at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding in water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth. When he had not yet made earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker. Though nobody quite knows how to translate that word, and the NRSV margin offers you, as an alternative reading, little child. Uh, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race. Now the reason for that passage in its context, the point about that passage in its context, is that um, Proverbs is trying all means to get the people who are reading its stuff to take wisdom seriously. And so uh, earlier on in chapter 8, it's talked about the way in which, for instance, um, if you really want to be successful as a politician, as an administrator, as a businessman, you're going to need to take wisdom, wisdom seriously. And when it gets to verse 22, it's trying another ploy and it's saying, okay, if you really want to know why you should take wisdom seriously, then look at the fact that God took wisdom seriously for goodness sake in creation. If God needed wisdom in order to create the world, you need wisdom, don't you? There was the kind of practical reason then for including that um, uh, exposition, that description of God's using his wisdom uh, when God created the world. But the description of wisdom of the, in that kind um, had an interesting afterlife. It finds expression at the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. The life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. 
Now that opening chapter of John's Gospel is a midrash. It's a kind of exposition um, of Scripture. There are at least two passages of Scripture that it's an exposition of. It's an exposition of Genesis 1, but it's also an exposition of Proverbs 8. Uh, and you can see in the way it talks about the Word that it's picking up the idea in Genesis 1 uh, of God's creating by speaking. But the other concrete descriptions of God's creative work in uh, John chapter 1 uh, follow the language of Proverbs 8. So that the um, paragraph, that opening paragraph of John's Gospel, has brought Genesis 1 and Proverbs 8 together. Um, it's an interesting question why it didn't talk about, why it doesn't say in the beginning was wisdom and wisdom was with God and the word and wisdom was God because that would have um, uh, fitted very well obviously with Proverbs 8. Maybe it would have seemed weird to talk, to think about feminine wisdom which is feminine in Hebrew as in, in, in Greek as in Hebrew as being, uh, becoming incarnate in the, in the male Jesus. I don't know. Or maybe it was simply out of an awareness that you could put Genesis 1 and Proverbs 8 together. Um, but whatever's the right answer with regard to that question, Proverbs 8 was one of the passages that enabled the um, people who wrote the New Testament to get their minds round what Jesus was about. Because there in Proverbs 8, you've almost got God and wisdom as two separate people. Well, you have in the, in the picture, in the image, in the portrait that Proverbs 8 paints, You've got, you've got God, and you've got God's wisdom kind of there alongside God. And you can kind of picture God's wisdom dancing alongside God. It's as if there are the two of them kind of semi-separate. Obviously, God's wisdom isn't really separate from God, because it's part of God. And yet, in the picture, it's a, a separate entity from God. And so, as the Christians were needing to think their way into how they could understand the sense in which Jesus was... Um, an embodiment of God, a person who was distinct from God, and yet there was only one God, uh, then Proverbs 8 was one of the passages that uh, helped them do that. And the um, description of Christ as God's wisdom uh, in Colossians chapter 1 uh, likewise has the same background. Um, so that when Paul likewise says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, in him all things hold together. Uh, and, and given that in that passage Paul speaks about Christ as the wisdom of God, then um, it's a plausible theory um, that the picture in Proverbs 8 uh, was what it had enabled Paul, who of course was writing much earlier than John, um, to get his mind round, to find a way of talking about Christ as the um, embodiment of God's wisdom, the embodiment of God, the image of God, uh, in a way that identifies Jesus with God, yet leaves Jesus being a separate person without implying that you started believing in two gods. The, the funny um, postscript to the story um, is, is this, that in the NRSV translation of Proverbs chapter 8 that I read you just now, the passage in chapter 8 verse 22 begins, Yahweh created me at the beginning of his work. 
uh, and that translation in the, in the NRSV uh, reflects the fact that the Septuagint uh, uses the Greek verb ktidzo, uh, which means to create. So the Septuagint says, Yahweh created me at the beginning of his work. Uh, and so when in post-New Testament times, um, the Christian theologians were seeking to argue out precisely what was the nature of Christ and what was his relationship with God, and the Arians said uh, that Christ was a created being. If you don't know about the Arians yet, don't worry about it. It'll come one day. <laughs> then the Arian, the people of, an, of the Arian persuasion, could quote Proverbs 8 and say, you see, it says in the Bible that God created his wisdom. Okay, Jesus is God's wisdom, yes. It says in the Bible God created, God's wi God created um, his wisdom. Jesus is God's wisdom. Therefore, Jesus is created being QED. End of conversation about theology. Now, of course, if only they had read the Old Testament in Hebrew. Uh, because the verb that's translated create uh, in, um, in Proverbs 8 is the verb karnah, uh, which is, uh, amusingly, significantly maybe, uh, the word that Eve used. When she says, I have, in the King James Version, gotten a man with the help of the Lord, and she calls him Cain. Um, the the link there, the background to that, is that is that Cain's name looks very much. As you can all more or less hear it. it look, it's differently because the way we spell it, but in in Hebrew, it it, it looks quite like the verb kanar. Um, and so Eve can say, um, as we put it in English, "I've had a child," um, uh, or "I've got I've got a child." That's the the so that this this verb kanar which is not a very common word, but has quite a wide range of meanings and can mean create, well, maybe, sometimes, on odd occasions. But it's got a meaning that's more like when we say, I have a child, or I've got something, or I've acquired something, or I possess something. It means that it would be at least as reasonable in Proverbs 8 to translate verse 22 as, Yahweh had me at the beginning of his work. Um, and if you translate it that way, then you can um, meet the Arians on their own ground and say, yes, Proverbs 8 exactly fits with the kind of thing that we want to say about the relationship between Christ um, and the Father. The moral of the story is, you really do need to learn Hebrew in case you meet any Arians. <laughs> Which you will do, because Jehovah's Witnesses are Arians. Um, the bit on the bottom of that page... Uh, which I think I did men actually mention two weeks ago, or last week maybe. The place of wisdom thinking. Wisdom thinking can't tell you the gospel, but it can tell you lots of things in the same way as psychology and philosophy and the physical and social sciences and insights from other faiths. And the way in which Proverbs, the, the opening um, paragraph of Proverbs works is very instructive, I think, for us in thinking about the relationship between those other disciplines and Christian faith. Because to human insight of various kinds, wisdom says, yeah, but, because what it does is bring them into the context of righteousness, justice and equity, and or for Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. It models a process whereby then we seek to learn from what we call the, the social sciences, the secular thinking and so on. Uh, by inviting us to be open to them in the way that Proverbs is, as you can see it is when you compare it with the wisdoms of other peoples. 
but to do that in a way that takes it through the kind of sieve, puts it into the framework of, on the one hand, righteousness, justice and equity, and what those things mean in the context um, of the scriptures. And uh, awe for Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. So I'm going to set anything that the secular world, the social sciences discover, into the context uh, of my relationship with God. So that links with the parallels between Proverbs and other Middle Eastern wisdom literature, some of which Proverbs has utilised. It models a way of learning from the world. And as I think I said um, the other day, it points to the way that people presuppose the reality of God, often, um, as their language manifests what the sociologist Peter Berger calls signals of transcendence, indications in people's thinking that they really do believe that there is order about the world, and they do believe in play, and they do believe in hope, and they do believe in judgment, and they do believe in humour, but none of those things are realities um, uh, unless God is there. And so um, Berger suggests you can listen to the kind of th way that the world talks and find ways into talking about the gospel of the ways in which, the, in which people are already presupposing something of the uh, reality of God in the way that they talk. Uh, anybody want to say anything about that? Okay, we'll stop. We're five minutes early, so back at 8.05. Okay? Don't get lost. Yeah.